Hey everybody, welcome back to Radio Imbibe from Imbibe Magazine. I'm Paul Clark, the executive editor of Imbibe, and I want to talk about the Caribbean for a moment. The very first time I visited the Caribbean, I spent most of the first day in a van with a bunch of other journalists. We're in Martinique on a steamy spring day, and we're being shuttled out of the old capital city of Saint-Pierre up to a few rum distilleries. Saint-Pierre, of course, had been totally destroyed in 1902 by the eruption of Mount Pele. That's the same volcano we were driving toward that day, climbing through the hills covered in banana farms and fields of sugarcane. Everything deeply green, and even on a day that was bright and sunny down at sea level, Mount Pele and its foothills were cloaked by clouds. When we finally got to the distillery, after more than an hour of driving these twisting, turning roads, the van stopped on a hill above the plant where you could see the whole thing down below you. The wagons of fresh-cut sugarcane being brought to the mill to be crushed, the distillery where that cane juice was fermented and then distilled, and the aging warehouses where thousands and thousands of gallons of rum were aging in oak barrels. It was hot and humid, and we were all kind of carsick from the long ride, but there was also a smell in the air. The smell of the fields and the soil and the lush forest around us, but also that bright grassy smell of fresh sugarcane and that deeply evocative smell of rum, just hanging there in the air, cloaking everything like the clouds around the volcano on whose slopes we were standing. I love rum, and I love those visits I've made to the places that rum calls home. And we love rum so much at Imbibe that for our September-October issue, which is available to you right now, we've put rum on the cover, and we dedicated a sprawling feature in that issue to everything rum-related. This is episode number three of our podcast, and we're devoting this episode to rum. How to drink it, how to understand it, and how to think about the spirit while also considering the people and the places behind it. We're going to dive in right now. And to kick things off, of course, we've got a cocktail for you from one of our favorite rum-loving writers and historians. So... We can't talk about rum or rum drinks without taking a tropical turn at some point, and we can't talk about tropical-style drinks without talking to Beach Bum Berry. Jeff Berry is the author of a number of books, including Beach Bum Berry's Sip and Safari and Potions of the Caribbean. He's also a co-owner of Beach Bum Berry's Latitude 29 in New Orleans, and he's here for us now with a new drink he's been working on. Welcome, Jeff. Aloha, Paul. Good to see you. Good to hear you again. Now, your books explore the history of tropical cocktails, tiki bars, and the ways that drinks from the tropics have continued to resonate through and influence the way we drink now. So a big old softball question for you to kick off. Uh, since we're talking about rum and our current issue, how important is rum to the tropical cocktail experience? <laughs> well, that is, that is definitely an underhand, slow <laughs> softball pitch. Uh, it's absolutely crucial. I mean, from the very first, the building blocks, the DNA of tropical drinks started off in uh, the 1600s with punch which by the time that got to the Caribbean, it was rum, lime, and sugar, basically. You know, rum, lime, and sugar is the holy trinity of tropical drinks. It always has been for centuries now. So you take that rum, lime, and sugar, and you start to expand upon it, dimensionalize a little bit, add more ingredients. You've got the cocktail coming in in uh, the mid-19th century, adapting the punch formula to a single-serving drink. And then you have drinks like the daiquiri and the mojito and the tea punch and the planter's punch, all rum drinks, all tropical drinks. And that, of course, was the inspiration for what we now call tiki drinks, which used to just be called tropical drinks or exotic cocktails. One of the things always bandied about when we were talking about rum is how magnificently diverse a category it is. When you look at the history of these drinks and as a bar owner and a cocktail drinker yourself, what kind of a toolbox does rum give you when you really dive into that category? That's a very nice segue into the drink we're going to make today, which we'll come back to. 
uh, which mixes a couple of different rums together. And the mixing of more than one base spirit of the same kind, in this case, cane spirits, in the same drink is something that I think you only can really do with rum and make a huge impact. I mean, if you put two bourbons, two different bourbons in an old fashioned or three different gins in a martini, first of all, why? You know, um, <laughs> whatever the bourbons are, there may be differences in proof, in taste and all that, but they're all going to be readily identifiable as bourbon. Same thing with uh, London Dry Gin, same thing with tequilas. With rum, you have this vast flavor spectrum, which again is the result of centuries of uh, variance in terroir, in distillation, in aging, and all these different things that came to be in different islands in different ways. You've got an incredible array of different flavors, bodies, colors in rum that you don't get in the other major base spirit categories. The only way I can really talk about rum to people when I'm trying to explain this complexity is to compare it to wine. It doesn't do you any good to compare rum to whiskey or to gin or to tequila because you have a white Puerto Rican rum, for example, and a black Jamaican rum, dark Jamaican rum. The white Puerto Rican is going to be column distilled from molasses, and it's going to be, first of all, clear. It's going to be dry, a little floral. Then you take that black Jamaican rum, it's most likely going to be at least semi-pot distilled in copper as opposed to column distilled. It's still going to be molasses-based, but if you move over a couple of islands to Martinique, you're going to find rums made from fresh-pressed cane juice, entirely different distillate than molasses. And these rums all taste very different. They look very different. They do different things in the same cocktail, and they cannot be substituted one for the other. And they're all rum. They're all cane spirits. Same thing with wine. If you take a Chablis and a Pinot Noir, you compare them. They're not the same color. They don't do the same thing when you pair them with food. They have different body, different uh, ABV, and different methods that brought them into the glass. And that's rum, basically. It's just a big mishmash of different ways of doing things that developed in isolation from each other from in the Caribbean islands, you had rum also made in India, you had rum made in the United States, Hawaii, you have rum made basically anywhere that cane grows, which is most of the world, you know, maybe the, the two poles are where you can't find rum. Right, right. Now you're going to make something for us. So hit it. <laughs> Yeah, um, this drink was something that uh, I've been in self-isolation for many, many months now, and um, I miss the French Quarter, and I miss Latitude 29, my two favorite things in New Orleans. So I started to come up with a drink that, A, referenced the classic flavors of classic New Orleans cocktails that you get in the French Quarter, all my favorite classic French Quarter bars. And of course, also, I had to give it a little tropical spin because, you know, because tiki <laughs> and because rum. So start off playing with this uh, sweetened guava puree that just came on the market. The first thing that came to mind when I tasted it was the Raffignac cocktail, a classic New Orleans drink, which is raspberry mixed with cognac or whiskey. And I thought, well, raspberry, guava, maybe guava is going to be have an affinity for cognac. And it did. It worked out. Um, I added some more New Orleans flavors, uh, Herb Saint, Maraschino, something that crops up a lot in uh, a lot of classic drinks. And uh, the thing that was missing, though, was the things that I like about cocktails, the things that make them tropical. I like sours. So some lime juice. And then, of course, it was pretty one-dimensional with just cognac. And how do you dimensionalize a cocktail? Well, for me, I'm kind of a one-trick pony. And for me, dimensionalizing a cocktail always means throwing in some rum. Not willy-nilly, of course. You think about 
which rums, which kind of density, flavor, and ABV is going to give the drink a little spin. And in this case, we went with, I went with a white Barbados mixed with a dark Jamaican. And we'll, we'll get into that after we make the drink. So we're going to start out with an ounce of lime juice. And then we're going to mix in our sweetened guava puree. It's the Real brand. So you just take it right out of the can. You don't have to find yourself some guavas and then do all the things you have to do to make a syrup. And uh, so there's three quarter ounce of that, an ounce of lime, and then we go with a half an ounce of cognac. But also use a California brandy. Um, and then we're gonna get into the rest of our base spirit mix. I found that cognac and rum works together. There's an affinity. I found that out many, many years ago with the Trader Vic's Bartender's Guide when I found out that a favorite trick of Vic's was to mix cognac with rum. He does that in his most famous drinks, two of his most famous drinks, the Scorpion and the Fog Cutter. So that was a no-brainer to, to uh, round out the base with some rum instead of more cognac, which was just one dimensional. So to our half ounce of cognac, we're adding three quarters of an ounce of a white Barbados rum. Normally the go-to would be the workhorse of every tropical bar, which would be a white Puerto Rican rum. But I found that the Barbados, one's from Dorley's, was a little rounder, a little softer, but it still had the basic neutrality of a white Spanish style run. So it's not going to fight all the other ingredients. It's not going to assert itself too much. On top of that, though, we want a little bit of rum assertion. So just a little bit more of a molasses hit, a little bit more body, a little fatness. So just a quarter ounce of a dark Jamaican rum to, uh, to add to our three quarter ounce of Barbados. Then we get into some classic cocktail stuff. Just a quarter ounce of Luxardo maraschino and a teaspoon of herb saint. Any more than that in the drink, I find just kind of overpowers it. And then a dash of Angostura. And this is not the usual kind of drink I make. This isn't a tall drink. This is shaken and strained into a cocktail coupe. Ice it up. Give it a shake. That should do the trick. And then strain into our coupe. It gives you a nice sort of pink coral color. So um, I called the drink Pink Moon. It's a phenomenon kind of like a blue moon or a harvest moon, but closer to why I named it, why it was in my mind, uh, Nick Drake, a British folk singer, he had a, an album called Pink Moon. It was one of my favorites. So we put a little lime wheel on that and then we take a sip and see what we've done. Okay. So basically, it's a, it's a mashup of that classic New Orleans cognac, not raspberry, but guava in this case, to tropicalize a little bit. And, and then we just sort of like give it a daiquiri spin, lime and rum. Right. Fantastic. And then that combination that you had in there of the teaspoon of Herb Saint and the Angostura bitters, that's kind of a classic tropical move as well. I can't put anything over on you, Paul. That I didn't invent that. <laughs> As you well know, being the cocktail historian you are, uh, Don the Beachcomber would regularly in his heavy-bodied rum drinks, particularly the dark rum punches like a planter's, he would just put a few drops of Herb Saint or Pernod or any kind of anise into a drink paired with a dash of Angostura. He might do that up to three dashes of each. And he had the herb saint in, a, in like a salad cruet that he especially prepared so that just drops came out at a time. I did want to do a New Orleans themed drink. And as you know, absinthe, New Orleans, you know, hand and glove. So I, I kept bumping it up from a few drops to a quarter teaspoon to a half a teaspoon. And finally, one teaspoon seemed to work any more than that. And it just becomes, you know, overpoweringly licorice -y. 
Right, right. And so for those playing along at home, trying to put this together, you've got the two ROMs. You've got the, the white Barbados ROM. You said you're using Dorley's. You've got a dark Jamaican ROM. And which one are you using? Um, so we we have um, Pierre Fran for the half ounce of cognac. For the white Barbados, I'm just using Dorley's white, which we finally get in New Orleans. Very smooth, rounded, less fusel oils than in Puerto Rican rum, less uh, less of that little harsh bite. So it works well with the cognac. Everything's just sort of nice and round. For the dark Jamaican, um, I, I prefer Caruba, but a lot of markets can't get it. Well, Appleton, Appleton, um, they keep changing their names, but it's their 12-year. That's uh, just the darkest rum they have. That would work very well. Now, the guava puree was the main thing here, and that's really the impetus for the drink. I'm using uh, Real's new guava puree. It's, an, it's sort of an infused syrup. For the maraschino, I just have Luxardo around. I mean, any name brand will do. Herb Saint, you don't have to use Herb's name. Again, that's just the New Orleans connection because it's from New Orleans. You can use Pernod. You can use any other anise. And of course, the lime, fresh lime juice, always, every time. <laughs> right. Well, that sounds amazing. And I look forward to the day, hopefully before too long, when you are back in your bar and it's safe for us to get on airplanes again and go to places like New Orleans and, and just simply hang out. Uh, because that is something I'm really missing right now. I miss it. I miss it too. And I miss you. I miss your smiling face, Paul. <laughs> well, Jeff, thank you so much, man, for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. You'll be able to enjoy a pink moon yourself at Beach Bum Berry's Latitude 29 in New Orleans when we finally get to a safer point in this whole COVID thing. Until then, mix one for yourself at home. Just check the notes accompanying this podcast episode for more details on the drink. One of the things we always like to say about rum is it's the most diverse spirit on the bar. With pretty much every rum-producing island or region having its own approach to the spirit, rum offers so many different directions to explore. But that exploration doesn't just mean learning about what's in the bottle. Because behind all of those bottles of rum are generations of history. And while rum's history includes its vital role in punches, in classic cocktails like the daiquiri and El Presidente, and in an ocean full of tropical drinks, rum's history also has its rough side that's long been overlooked in stories about the spirit. This history includes the colonization of the Caribbean and the Americas by the English, French, Spanish, Dutch, and Portuguese, and the transatlantic slave trade that forcibly brought millions of Africans over hundreds of years to work in the New World's sugarcane fields. Rum's history can be kind of bleak. But rum today is also the product of all of these different cultures throughout the Caribbean, the Americas, and around the world, with each rum on the shelf telling its own story about the place from which it came and the people who made it. We explore some of those places and stories in our September-October issue, but to give you a deeper glimpse into one rum distillery and its operations today in one rum-producing country, I recently chatted with Delphine Gardere, the fifth-generation head of Rum Barbancourt in Haiti. So in our September-October issue, we delve into rum and look at it as the wide-ranging, character-rich category that it is. Part of any conversation about rum comes down to understanding the distinctions between rums from different rum-producing islands or regions and why those distinctions exist. When we look at this broad array of rum, we obviously need to take a special look at Haitian rum and rum barbancourt. What is it about the way that... Haitian rum is produced and the reason it's produced in that way that makes it interesting in this rum conversation. So I think the fact is that we have to establish first that Haiti has not been a colony since 1804. 
So we've been the first independent black country in the world. And we take a lot of pride in that. And in terms of rum producing, we are still using some of the French methods, but we do not also have any AOC label, meaning that we are able to be a bit more freestyle in the way we produce our rum. Um, we use, for instance, sugarcane, um, sugarcane juice. We work with local co cooperatives because there's been a lot of land that's been more sold ever since, you know, we've become independent. So we have to work with local farmers, I think, which is uh, in big contrast to some other islands where they have very, very big plantations. So that's the first thing. I think Haiti has one of the biggest number of distilleries, I think, um, in terms of the Caribbean, but a lot of them produce white rum. And bourbon port, we are the leader in the branded category of rums because there's not a lot of other companies on the island that produce aged rum. And that's really the heart of our business is aged rum. It's a family business, basically. And we've been producing it since 1862. About half of your sugarcane is grown in fields right around the distillery and transported directly to the distillery. Is that still true? Um, so about 80% of the sugarcane comes from local farmers. About 20% is fields that belong to us around the factory, more or less. Uh, we have a specific service that works with local farmers, like cooperatives, and that bring basically, that we work with them on helping them with drainage, helping them with infrastructure, and how to grow the sugarcane. Because also what you have to know is that sugarcane is used to grow other agricultures. So you can grow peas and things like that. So it's in their interest to have sugarcane. And also we can help them have like subventions to do other types of crops. We work with about 3,000 planters which I think is quite different. I guess kind of like you would say in France, some uh, wine or champagne producers work with local cooperatives. A lot of rum drinkers have a familiarity with rum agricole from Martinique and from Guadeloupe. How does Haitian rum and rum barbancourt share some characteristics while also going in its own direction? So um, compared to French style rum, like Martinique or Guadeloupe, we do not have an AOC label, I would say. So basically, the French and Martinique have a specific set of criteria at which they need to produce rum. For instance, they cannot be uh, leveling up to some level of plateaus when they distill. They have um, very um, specific guidelines to be called French rum, kind of like the, you know, the um, French wine versus Chilean wine. So... We also use sugarcane juice, but we are able to be, I would say, maybe a bit more independent. I guess that's, that's a patient feature, a bit more independent in the way that we do we distill and we um, do everything. The, only, the other similarity I would say is the fact that we use cognac. A lot of the inspiration is from cognac. Um, Dupré Barbancourt, the original founder of the company, used the methods of cognac, so double distillation. We use French oak barrels as well to age. So I would say that's probably some of the similarities we also have with other French style runs. Now, 
the Haitian people have long faced a very particular set of challenges economically, politically, as well as experiencing natural disasters. And Haiti has also been depicted in kind of an unfortunate way by some global leaders. Yes. What kinds of things are you doing to support local communities there in Haiti, as well as to introduce a wider global audience to Haitian culture and give the world a fuller perspective on Haiti? So we have a foundation that was developed by my father in the 90s. So we do a lot of uh, local outreach, so um, clinics, mobile clinics for people in the region. We help the planters. We're trying to be socially responsible. And in terms of also the company itself, what the new thing we've been doing is basically pegging the currency. So for the salaries of the employees, because what's happened is like the local currency has gone from 70 to a dollar to like 130 to a dollar. So it's basically a constant challenge to reevaluate salaries because we cannot pay the employees in dollars. That's not acceptable in, I think, taxation law, basically, <laughs> accounting wise. So what we do is every month we peg, we fix, we have a fixed rate to which we... Um, give the salaries in the local currency. So basically, even though the currency level is dropping, the buying power of the employee is either increasing or staying the same. And then in terms of representing Haiti to the rest of the world, because, you know, one of the ways that we experience other cultures and are introduced to other cultures is through the products that we may purchase from those. And for Haiti, I mean, rum is going to be one of the most obvious consumer goods that we will come across. So how can Barbancourt and Haitian rum producers convey this kind of story and this kind of connection to the island, to these consumers around the world? So the other thing as well is that we've been really, really represent with the Haitian art and culture community. We have our packaging since the 1960s for the 15-year-old that has that was an original um, a painting, originally a painting. And ever since, we've always been very present in the arts and supporting either local artists, old artists, new artists. This is something we do regularly. And I think this is one of Haiti's best, I think, exports is the arts, basically. There's uh, so much, so many different types of art in Haiti, from um, naive painting to more figurative styles, um, including some that are mixed media with recycling material like rubber or steel, there's a lot to be known and to be said about Haitian arts and cultures. It's a very deep culture. And also, I think since we're talking about rum, we can also talk about the richness of the food because Haiti is a culture that's very special because we were colonized by the Spanish, the French and the English, plus the African descent. So there's a lot of mixture in terms of food. We have, um, we use, uh, what do you call that? We use rice and beans. That's like a national dish, like all the Latin American countries. But then we would have beef filet that will be literally cut, but then dried up like the Indians would do. Or there's a lot of uh, manioc. I think it's manioc um, like they use in Africa. So it's a very, really, really rich and dense culture, also culinary wise. Now, you just took your position as the head of Rum Barbancourt earlier this summer, and you're the fifth generation of your family to do so. 
As with any significant change like this, it marks a new stage for the distillery. How do you plan to lead the brand in the years to come to both keep this kind of connection to the rum's Haitian home and identity while also bringing in new rum drinkers around the world? I wouldn't say that we would reposition or change any of the positioning of the brand. I think it's important that we stay true to being Haitian because that is what we are. And the heart of the brand is Haiti and it's also aged rum. I think what we would love to do is see a bit more, maybe development product-wise, maybe why not try some um, finishes, maybe try new, um, how do you say, new casks, well, cask finishes, single barrel, high proof rum as well. You know, so these are kind of things I think that we could experiment with, but still keeping really what our core brand is about. Because when you have such an old company, like like it's such a big legacy, as a fifth generation, I'm just, I'm merely just a passenger <laughs> in the hundred and the over 150 years. So it's quite humbling. Um, so I can only bring my touch to something that's bigger than me. While we're a fifth generation, there's a lot of memories. There's a lot of legacy that goes into it. You know, my family, there was always a happy hour. So this is the kind of thing I grew up around. Happy hour, uh, 4, 5 p.m., madman style at my uh, grandparents' house with the cocktail, the shaker, the rum sour, or the frozen daiquiri. I think that's pretty much our legacy. We love our product, you know, and I'm really, really proud to be the second female leader of the company, because actually the second leader, the wife of Dupré was called Natalie. And she was the second one to lead the, she was the first woman to lead the company in the early 1900s. And I'm actually the second female. So she was quite, I guess, um, before her time, she was the first girl there to actually lead the company. And now I'm the second and she was quite feisty. There was a sort of war going on in Haiti and she would have uh, munitions below her gown and bring it to the, the team when they needed them. So yeah, <laughs> I think that's a bit of history for you. And Natalie is actually my middle name. So there you go. You can find out more about Rum Barbancourt at barbancourt.com. Now, if you're on your own exploration of rum, then the best place to go wide and go deep on your journey is going to be one of the world's great rum bars. We've got a bunch of those for you in our September-October issue, and while putting that issue together, I spoke with the owner of one of these great rum bars, Sly Augustine, from Trailer Happiness in London. People know Trailer Happiness as a great tiki bar with a full arsenal of tropical drinks, but it's also one of the world's great rum bars. How does being one of those affect the other? How does being a great tiki bar affect the bar's approach to rum? The two things obviously complement each other quite well. We wouldn't be the first tiki bar to have a great rum selection. In fact, if a tiki bar is open now, if people open it would do any kind of research, I think the first thing they would do and they would know is that they would need to have a, a serious collection of rum. I don't think it would necessarily have to be as, as large as Trailer Happiness's collection, but certainly um, knowing your rum is now part of the kind of tiki structure. 
for me, I'm connected to rum on, on a cultural level because my lineage and my heritage goes back to the Caribbean. My dad is from Jamaica. My mom is from St. Lucia. And, you know, these are two places where, where rum features quite heavily. And so, you know, you grow up in a household where rum is just the thing in the cabinet. It's the drink that comes out at parties and gatherings. And, you know, when I went back to the Caribbean as a teenager, it was the drink that you find in every little shack. Every little wooden shop would have a little barrel of what shall we call car strength rum overproof rum in it so yeah rum flowed and rum is just kind of that community spirit you know right so it was a part of your family growing up yeah and i don't i don't mean you know i didn't really see a lot of there wasn't a, like, like a lot of drinking but it was special occasions so you know if it was a birthday party or a christening or a wedding and there would be quite a lot of those then you would see the rum would come out for sure now that's interesting because you have that experience, you know, seeing that in the Caribbean firsthand, first person, you know, just the way that rum is a part of that culture. One of the things that, as you know, that we're seeing in the rum world right now is this kind of greater embrace of authenticity, of really trying to appreciate the places where rum is made and understanding rum as a piece of that culture. Does rum give you an opportunity to help explain to people, to help explain to your clientele more about Caribbean cultures and how one portrays the other? Um, yes. I think it does definitely. Um, I also think that it allows our consumers to teach us as well because you know you can learn about a rum, you can learn the technical details of a rum, you know, you can really understand the scientific makeup of the liquid. But when you have somebody come into the bar who maybe is from Jamaica, Trinidad, Guyana, Barbados, when they speak to you about the rum with with their passion and their nostalgia and their own history and, and stories, it creates a much broader picture and gives you a better sense of, you know, what this spirit is about. You feel that you get that a lot, I think, with, with the Haitian runs, with the Claren, very much connected to the people that make it. And I think that that information is super useful and gives you, yeah, it just gives you a better understanding. You know, you mentioned rums from Haiti and Haitian Claren is fierce that can help you illustrate a culture to consumers and to your own bar staff as well. What other rums on the shelf now do you think give you those tools, for example, showing somebody a Jamaican rum and explaining why this is distinctive from other rums, Barbados rum and going that same route? What kinds of rums give you those kinds of tools? Yeah, I think I'd go with, if I picked up a, a rum from Worthy Park, for instance, and, you know, Worthy Park have quite a small range. So I think in the core range, there are maybe four expressions four or five expressions have got the overproof rumba, the what they refer to as gold, slightly aged, and the silver. And then they have their properly aged expressions gone to the Worthy Park name. And for me, it's a really good place to kind of look at what makes Jamaican rums so distinctly different from other rums in terms of flavor profile and the whole process of distillation. So yeah, I definitely put Worthy Park in there for Jamaica. I definitely put Foursquare in there for Barbados. The French, um, ex-French colonies like Martinique, um, incredible amount of connection to a specific region. You know, when you try and take people on a journey, through flavor profiles this is a really good way to show that journey because you have islands that are relatively close to each other but that create significantly different rums due to their own individual journey and stories and relationship to the cane and with the attention that bartenders and consumers are paying to run now and knowing more about its story you know how it's made some of the background how have you seen that understanding change on your end with clientele coming in what's their level of understanding now so yeah, there are two things at play. One of them is the fact that we are known as a 
specialist rumba. So we tend to get people who at the very least have a, a pre-interest in the spirit before they even get into the bar. So it's much easier, you know, so we're going to see people with much more interest in rum. And then I think there's, you know, we also get enthusiasts come down as well. But I think that it's still a very small percentage ultimately of our customers that I would say have changed specifically to rum. So I don't know if I would say that there's like an increase in rum knowledge necessarily, but what I would say is there is an increased desire to consume quality products. So in that regard, I think, yeah, I think the customers are a lot more discerning and definitely be more interested in what's in their glass. Sure. And especially among other bartenders, other folks in the industry, and among rum consumers who are looking to learn a little bit more, what kinds of questions should they be asking about rum in order to further that understanding and to kind of guide them along that path? Yeah. So obviously important things to know would be what style of rum is it? So is it a molasses based rum or is it a fresh cane juice rum? Is it aged in it in bourbon casks or is it finished at some other wine casks or you know so the type of cask the length of aging and the distillation methods so you know you've got pot still and column still and they're going to give you significantly different profiles and textures so i would say the questions you want to ask are what style of rum is it what's the process for fermentation or distillation and what's the age of this rum although interestingly each one of those variables kind of influences the other one do you know what i mean right right now since you've been doing this for a number of years and you've seen these kinds of changes going on within the rum world and within the way that people understand rum when you look out just a few more years, how do you see like the rum world continuing to unfold in terms of the availability that we have, the kinds of things that you'll be getting excited about and that your customers will be getting excited about? Wow. So yeah, I mean, we've never had it so good. It really is the amount of premium um, rums that are available now. Just such a stream of good quality rums. Now, for anybody who's just getting into rum now, I'd say that they're in a a very lucky position because there is so much to choose from. There's so much good liquid out there at the moment. My personal rum preferences definitely changed massively since first took over the bar, you know, and that's just under a decade ago. So it's different. It's definitely a different time for somebody getting into rum now. Like I say, it's a much more pleasant journey, I think. Sly noted, this is really a great time to be a rum drinker, and we're doing our best to help out. If you head to our website, imbibemagazine.com, and type rum in the search bar, then all kinds of recipes and resources are going to be right there for you. Be sure to pick up a copy of our new issue. The easiest way to keep up with that is to become a subscriber. Just click on the little link that you'll find on the episode details accompanying this podcast, and we'll get you taken care of. Be sure to also keep up with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and be sure to follow this podcast for future episodes, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and your favorite podcast app. That's it for this round, everyone. Thanks for hanging out. Go mix yourself a daiquiri, and I'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. Music